Good morning. It's good to be in Oklahoma. Uh, I realize most of the country might not say that. I actually say it and I believe it. Uh, I have a number of family who live in Oklahoma, so it's good to be here with you all and to share God's word with you this morning. The text from this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 5 through 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 5 through 17. Hear now the word of God. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the word of the Lord. What we're looking at this morning is something that I believe is foundational for true freedom in the Christian life. And as I've understood it, you all have been going through the book of Galatians with Pastor Blake. And I believe this is a really good complement to that. And it also addresses a tendency in some circles of Christianity to view ourselves as Christians wrongly. Namely, as, as poor, miserable, wretched, worthless sinners. And so, to, to kick us off, I want to start by sharing an example, if you would. And you might have a picture up here, but I brought a prop for you, in case you can't see it. This is me. And I'll read you the caption. It says, harder than it looks. Putting bat to ball isn't always as easy as it looks. Just ask Scott Mitchell of the Greenville YMCA's Coach Pitch League. Though Scott took a mighty cut, he wasn't able to connect on this pitch and subsequently struck out. <laughs> to be fair, my coach threw 98 miles an hour and had a wicked curveball. Now, this was printed in the Greenville Herald Banner, Greenville, Texas, which at the time had a readership of about 50,000 people. It was on the front page of the Sunday sports section. And for the next 12 years, I was that kid who couldn't hit the ball. Now, to be fair, I went through, I played baseball through high school, and this is a pretty accurate representation of how I could hit. I could feel the ball really well, I could throw well, but when it came to hitting, 
This happened to me a lot. Now, notice my form is excellent, if I can say that much, but I missed the ball. However, if you were to ask my late grandmother about me, about how, what type of baseball player I was, and you said, Betty, please tell me, how good is Scott at baseball? She would go on and on with the highest of accolades to the point that you thought that this little kid, Scott Mitchell, was the second coming of Babe Ruth. Now, grandmothers like to stretch a little bit, but it wasn't even close to the true picture. Now, there was a vast difference between what my grandmother said about me and what was reality. In the same way, there's often a vast difference between what we experience and what God says, which is ultimate reality. Or to put it another way, there's often a vast difference between how we see ourselves when we look in the mirror and how God sees us, okay? So even though we read uh, a number of verses, we're only focusing on one verse this morning, this verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you would, you can consult your outline in the bulletin on page 11. We're going to start this morning by looking at the first question. What is the Christian's identity? What is the Christian's identity? And by that, I mean when the Christian looks in the mirror, what should he see according to today's passage? You know, in many ways, the entire human race is looking to answer this question. Having finished almost nine years in college ministry, I know that this is a question that college students ask on an almost daily basis. Who am I really? And if we're Christians, we want to go to Scripture first to attempt to answer this question. Because Scripture is our ultimate authority in faith and in life. So what does Scripture say about the Christian? What does this passage say? And I think if we look at this verse, it says two big things. First, it says, if anyone is in Christ. Now, we don't want to skip over this. If Scripture is inspired, it's the inerrant Word of God, then every paragraph, every phrase, every word is there for a reason. And so this, this phrase, in Christ, is not there to make this passage or this verse seem religious. It's not there as decoration on the sentence. And actually, if you look at it, this phrase, in Christ or in Him, it appears in the New Testament over a hundred times. Over a hundred times. So why does it appear so often? Why is it here in today's passage? If we look, actually, at the next book, or just a little bit earlier, a few chapters earlier, 2 Corinthians 1, it has this wonderful verse that says this, 
For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So everything that God has done in creating the world, everything that he's done in sending a Redeemer, in promising a Redeemer to Adam and Eve, everything that he's done to have the eternal Son of God become a man, to live a perfect life, to suffer, to die, to be raised from the dead, to ascend to heaven, to send the Spirit, everything that he's ever promised to mankind whether that's to Adam and Eve, or to Abraham, or to David, or to you, finds its yes in one place, in Jesus. It finds its yes in Jesus. And so when the Bible says this small phrase, in Christ, it means that everything that God has ever done to glorify himself and everything that he has done to redeem mankind finds its locus in Jesus. And that's it. So that's the first thing that we see. If anyone is in Christ, and we look at the rest of the sentence, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. Now if we look at this and actually think about it, you, you might be thinking maybe like a lot of people, okay, I think I see what this verse is saying, but why do I have to be new? Why do I have to be new? Because new seems a bit drastic. I want to give you a couple references from Scripture, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The Old Testament comes from Genesis 6, chapter 5. This is very early on in the Bible. It says this, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a pretty strong indictment. When we look at Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it says this, it says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. You see, mankind was created to have a relationship with a creator. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were created to have wonderful relationship with each other, in a tender, wonderful relationship with their Creator. The problem with sin wasn't just mere disobedience. It was, a, it was a fracturing of that relationship. So that from Adam and Eve on, there was a fracture in the relationship, not, not only between people on the horizontal, but between people and God on the vertical. And so sin is not just merely breaking the rules, it's continuing in a state of a fractured relationship with God. And the Bible teaches that this is the way mankind is now after the fall in the garden. That we're born into the world with a fractured relationship with God and we don't do anything to fix it. That's the picture that we have here. Let me give you an illustration. When I was in seminary, 
You see, it started in 2004. When I was in seminary, um, I wanted to find the best, I don't know if the best is the right word, the cheapest and easiest option to feed myself. And you know what I discovered? Sandwiches are it. If you're, if you're studying for 12 hours a day and working part-time, you want to find something that you can do very quickly that will fill your belly. Um, it actually caused me to gain weight, but that's another conversation. But I'm excited to say that sandwiches was my saving grace of food. Now, here's the problem. Anyone that knows me knows that I can be both very messy and very forgetful. And so it happened that on occasion that I would buy a loaf of bread, buy some sandwich meat, buy cheese, always gonna have cheese, and I would forget where my loaf of bread was. Now it would come about that sometimes I would find this loaf of bread after two or three weeks, and what would I find on it? Mold, right. But if it's only two or three weeks, there's not a lot of mold. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. There's a little mold on the outside. Now, some of you are averse to having any mold on your loaves whatsoever. Let me tell you what. When you're, when you're a grad student, you save every morsel of food. So I would take, a, take off the outer piece that might have mold, and you know this to be the case. Mold kind of goes up maybe on one side, so I'd take a knife and cut that off and then I would have a loaf without any mold, and you know what? Voila, more sandwiches. <laughs> Wonderful. It happened on more than one occasion where I would misplace a loaf of bread, and I, this actually did happen. My wife can attest to it, she's here. I would misplace a loaf of bread for not two weeks, not six weeks, but six months. Oh yeah. Um, what do you think that I found when I found this loaf of bread? Some of you have no idea because you've never lost a loaf of bread. <laughs> what I found, I didn't even know this was the case. I found a lump of mold. And when you pick it up, this giant dust cloud happens. And there's nothing left of the bread. Now, even the poorest of graduate students at this point says, I cannot eat this. And you throw it away, right? The way that the Bible speaks of humanity, fallen humanity, is not that we have a little mold on the corner that we can just neatly cut off. The way that Scripture presents fallen humanity is that we have mold to such degree that we're rotten through and through. That nothing can be salvaged, that the bad part can't be excised, but the whole thing must be made new. This is why today's verse says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not an improved creation. God has no desire to take you and make you better. 
For those of you who, who work in construction or engineering, if you have a building with a terrible foundation, what happens? The thing falls down. You must have a good foundation. And all of our foundations, because of sin, are broken. The whole thing must be made new. Now, what does it mean then in this context to be made new? What does it mean? I want to share with you from the, the famous Baptist um, commentator, John Gill. Here's what he says. He says, it's not an outward reformation of behavior. It's not an external reformation, but an inward principle of grace it is God's planting something new in the soul. A new heart, a new spirit, and in them new light and life. New affections and desires, new delights, new joys. Here are new eyes to see with, new ears to hear with, new feet to walk, new hands to work and act with. Even putting it in the context of this passage, if you look at what precedes it, Jesus died and was raised for our sakes so that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. For that to happen, we have to be made new. To put it in the words of Matthew Henry, he says this, he says, the birth of a child creates a new soul in the world. The birth of the Christian regeneration creates a new world in the soul. So this is the Christian's identity, according to the passage. And we can expand this a little bit by asking today's second point. How does God see the Christian? How does God himself see the Christian. I want to preface that by saying all of this talk about being a new creation. Is this really true or are we making a mountain out of a one-verse molehill? Is it really true? What does the rest of the Bible say? How does God really see the Christian? And so I want to read for you just a handful of things just from the New Testament. How does God really see the Christian? From Colossians. Buried with Christ. Raised with Him from the dead. Holy. Beloved. From Hebrews. Partakers of Christ Himself. Beloved. From Corinthians. Known by God. New creations. From 1 John. Children of God. From Romans. Dead to sin alive to God in Christ Jesus, freed from sin, slaves of righteousness, enslaved to God, released from the law of bondage, no longer condemned, free from the law of sin and of death, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, sons of the living God. 59 times in the New Testament, Christians are called saints, literally holy ones, zero times are they called sinners. There are at best two debatable examples. There are at best two. 
And to remind you too, today's text was written to the Corinthian church. Which if you're familiar with this book at all, you'll know that they had many, many problems. They were suing each other. One man had entered into a relationship with his stepmom. They were arguing about whose baptism was best. I was, I was baptized of Blake. I was baptized of Scott. I was baptized of Jason Bobo. Some rich believers were showing up to the evening church service and getting drunk on communion wine before the service even began so that when the poor Christians showed up to worship, they couldn't even have the Lord's Supper because half of the congregation was wasted. This church had problems. And yet, how many times does God, through the Apostle Paul, call these people, you dirty, rotten sinners? Not once. Not once. Now, some of you may be struggling with what's being said this morning. And maybe thinking, you know, how can I have this view? Won't it lead to pride? Won't it say, look at me. I am a new creation. There's one very important caveat to this. And it's in the verse itself. We're only a new creation if we're in Christ. We're only a new creation if we're in Christ. The self, this type of self-image definitely does lead to pride if we see ourselves apart from Christ as a new creation. But the only way that we're new is if we're in Christ himself. And so, let's say you're here today and maybe you're skeptical about Christianity. Or maybe you've been in church most of your life and you don't really believe the Bible. You don't believe what it says. I'm glad that you're here. The people of Trinity are really glad that you're here. And I want to thank you for giving your valuable time on a Sunday morning to come here. But it's really important for you to hear this. It's important for all of us to hear this. You do not get to be in Christ. You do not get to be a new creation by trying harder or by, by being a good spouse or a good parent or a good citizen or a good employee or a good church member. All of those are mere improvement projects on a soul soaked with sin before a holy God. The only way that you get to be in Christ, the only way that you get to be a new creation is by seeing yourself as hopeless before God and throwing yourself upon Jesus alone for salvation. This is important both for the Christian and everyone else here to remember. So no, I do not think that this view leads to pride. And that brings us to today's final point. What are the implications for all of this? What are the implications for all of this? Here's one. I'll give you an example. In, in nine years of working with college students, 
most of whom are not from Christian families. I know I know far I know far too many who grew up hearing that they were stupid, ugly, worthless, fat. So for 18 years they hear this. When they get to their dorm room in their freshman year, and she sits down, and she's on her bed, what do you think she's going to believe about herself? You think she's going to believe that she's a wonderful, lovely person? No. She's not. Because what is said about us matters. If you hear something enough, you begin to believe it. That's one reason why it matters. You know, some of you may have been in a similar situation even growing up. And you long to stop hearing that voice, and you long to hear another voice. Today's passage is another voice, Christian hear what the Bible is saying about you. Hear that voice. So that's one implication. We begin to believe what is said about us. And the second is, by not believing this, what the Bible says of the Christian, it ultimately takes away from Christ and his work. Just Imagine this conversation with Jesus that I, of course, have never had. Maybe you have had, that I have all the time. You know, Jesus, I trust you, I do, and I hear what's being said of me. I hear that you're calling me a new creation. I hear that I have been adopted as your beloved child. But I think you're way off because I'm looking in a mirror and you seem to be blind. In a roundabout way, that's calling God a liar. It is. It's saying, my view of reality, God, is true. And your view of reality is incorrect. It says, my view of reality is primary. Your view of reality is secondary. What we are trying to do in this passage, what we are trying to do in all of Scripture, is hear His voice first, and our voice second. What does He say of us? What does He say of us? You know, there's, there's a number of objections to this. You know, this means that the Christian is supposed to be perfect. If we're new, we should look new. You don't have to be an architectural scholar to tell the difference between a house built in 2017 and one built in 1817. It doesn't take a genius. And so we think if we are new as Christians, we ought to look new. And if we look new, that means we don't sin. Well, that's not what the, that's not what the Bible says at all. 
I mean, 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But here it is. My point is, even though the Christian still sins, God does not see him as a sinner. Even though the Christian sins, God does not see him as a sinner. You know, I, I think that a lot of times this, this accusation of perfectionism or this understanding that a Christian must be this way has roots in a misunderstanding of what it means to actually be the new man. You know, a lot of Christians see themselves and even speak of themselves as being both new man and old man, being both a new creation and an old creation. I want to share with you what John Murray the late former professor of biblical and systematic theology at Westminster Seminary has said about this. Quote, the old man is the unregenerate man. The new man is the regenerate man created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It is no more feasible to call the believer a new man and an old man then it is to call him both a regenerate man and an unregenerate man. And neither is it warranted to speak of the believers having in him both the new man and the old man. This kind of terminology is without warrant and is but another method of doing prejudice to the doctrine which Paul was so jealous to establish when he said, our old man has been crucified. Professor Murray goes on to say, the believer is a new man, a new creation, but he is not, but he is a new man, not yet made perfect. A new man, not yet made perfect. You know, to me, this is a lot like looking at a Picasso. Some of you are fantastic art fans. And when you look at a Picasso, you know a Picasso. You know what happens when most people look at a Picasso? What in the world is that? Right? We see it and we go, well, I think my seven-year-old just did something amazing here. Because you look at a Picasso and his ear, an ear is on the kneecap. And an eyeball is across the painting and the head is twisted sideways like something you would see on a video game. And you look at this and you go, well, that is not good. Or, to use another phrase, that is imperfect. At least Van Gogh got his anatomy right. People had their eyes in the right spot. Picasso, no. To the untrained eye, it seems imperfect. But the point is, as imperfect as it may seem, it's still a Picasso, right? It's still a masterpiece. As imperfect as any individual Christian may seem, day to day, week to week, year to year, the Christian is still a new creation. You are still God's masterwork. You may look like a Picasso right now, 
but at some point you're going to look like Van Gogh. Okay? There's a difference between what God sees and what we see. What God sees is the ultimate reality. And if he has declared us to be a new creation in Christ, we should latch onto that with everything that we have. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enable us to believe. To believe that we, those who are in Christ, are new. You would enable us to refuse to be identified with the old man any longer because it has been crucified on Jesus' cross. Help us to hear your voice calling out new creation, beloved child. And help us to walk in light of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.